Explore presents a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a devil or two to boot by Alec and Jan Foreman. Chapter 35 Indian Potpuri 27th of November to the 4th of December 1977 India Ajmer, Dioli, Bundi, Kota, Baran, Shivpuri, Jansi, Kajaraho took three full days, driving 467 miles through varied countryside from farmland to lakes and marshlands, fording rivers and alongside uncultivated terrain with distant hills. We stopped at wayside cafes for chai and tasty savoury snacks, curried chicken, curried potato and cauliflower. Rice and japatis were a welcome break. It was then that the four of us took the chance to chat and check our maps for the route ahead. There were so many people in the towns and villages and whenever we stopped we soon became the focus of attention. We were guests in their country and we tried to be patient even though we were often hassled by groups of noisy, rambunctious lads encircling us as we walked along the streets. At times this proved so overwhelming that we retreated to our Land Rovers and drove on. Along the roads, we wove between the assortment of road users, from big trucks to bullock carts that transported people and goods. Whole families were on the move, migrating with their animals. Their water buffaloes carried wood-framed, rope-strung beds across their backs, with baby goats, chickens and brass pots perched on top. As we drove through the villages, we regularly saw toddlers tottering along, completely alone on the road, such little ones who were quite unaware and unprotected from the dangers of the traffic trundling by. We had to be prepared for anything and everything. Watch out for snakes, someone called as we climbed out of our Land Rover at the Kajaraho tourist bungalow campsite. I turned, having heard a familiar voice. Simon! Rose! How are you? I responded, delighted to see our fellow travel companions from the Afghan route. Lost any good wheels lately? Alec asked, tongue-in-cheek. No, fortunately not, Simon chuckled. It's great to see you. How's it going? We were thrilled to catch up on news altogether, along with Jean-Luc and Martine. The kettle went on and the chatter flowed for a good hour. Before turning in for the night, I cautiously pulled Rose to the side and asked, What did you say before? About snakes? Oh, apparently this area is known for its snakes, although we haven't seen any yet, and we've been here since yesterday. Well, I shan't be roaming about in the dark, that's for sure, I replied. When I like checked around the Land Rover in the morning, he discovered the front right tyre was flat. He thought the Schrader valve was leaking, so he changed the wheel first thing before we headed off to visit the famous 
Kajaraho temples. 22 of the original 85 temples remained. Built out of sandstone, a few were remarkably well preserved, considering they were over a thousand years old. Set in pleasant, well-kept gardens, the temples were astonishing for their grandeur and hundreds of artistic sculptures, figures of animals and gods, plus erotically posed nudes in sexual abrasement that would take an Olympic gymnast to perform. Statues of men engaged with one or two women boldly showed the enlarged detail of their amorous body parts. It was staggering to see the skill of the craftsmen who created these extravagant works of art in such abundance centuries before. Early in the afternoon, we left the campsite to continue on towards Varanasi, driving alongside farmland with a few trees here and there. There was not much to note for the remainder of the day, and we parked up for the night on a fallow field. I fixed supper, cheese and onion omelette, new potatoes, sweet macaroni and stewed apples. Gorpers were kept away when rain fell during the evening. Its pitter-patter on the elevated roof lulled us to sleep. We awoke to a radiant sunrise. The air smelt of damp earth and a new day had begun. After waiting patiently for Jean-Luc's Land Rover to cough into life, we set off, initially heading towards the small town of Rewa. There we refuelled the vehicles and had potato fritters and tea to top up our energy levels. As we continued en route to Chachai, the road passed through prosperous farming communities. The farmhouses were built of mud with clay-tiled roofs. At Chachai, we saw the cascading waterfalls that dropped over 300 feet into a gorge in the otherwise gently rolling land. It was very hot and humid. There was always something new to notice every day. The curiosity of that day were several sedan chairs carried by sedan bearers walking one behind the other along the road. The occupants were completely hidden within the fabric-covered box. There was a long pole slotted through a bracket on either side of each box, with a person to the fore and aft holding the end of a pole in each hand like one does with a stretcher. We stopped at a pleasant location for lunch, but soon became the locals' curiosity, with 30 children, a few men and women, plus a family of monkeys, all intent on watching our every move and every mouthful. Leaving the agricultural plain, we drove up over a rise to where the land had slabs of brown and orange rock formations, like a giant's chocolate bar with orange filling. The roadside was bedecked with green and beige wild grasses sprouting from the rich red earth. The Land Rovers climbed up to an escarpment which became forested the higher we went. Over the other side, the rolling farmed plateau was spread out before us as we continued to Merzepur, a bustling topsy-turvy town with traders' goods overflowing onto the road. Many potters were creating clay pots on their wheels as they sat in front of their mud houses. Finished pots dried in the sun. Countless children and adults were about, and rickshaws, bullock carts, cyclists and all manner of vehicles caused chaos and confusion along the streets. 
Fortunately, the railway crossing was manned as we waited for two electric trains to pass by. We heard the strange zonking sound of flour mills operating as we went through some of the villages. Dusk was falling as we drove along a main street lined with pottery stalls next to one another. Each was illuminated by its own hurricane lamp, showing off clay pots of all shapes and sizes. Thirty miles short of Varanesi, we drew to a halt a good distance from the closest village and parked for the night. Another glorious morning and off we went again, passing through many more villages on the way to the city. We saw shopkeepers trading merchandise, barbers cutting hair and women collecting animal manure from the road. They made dung cakes and carried this freely available fuel in baskets on their heads. Camels with their riders and heavily laden donkeys were being led along. Children clad in smart uniforms were walking to school. We passed several trishaws loaded with cauliflowers. Arriving in Varanesi, we drove over the Great Bridge and crossed the sacred Ganges River. It was a nightmare driving through the narrow congested streets with so many slow-moving vehicles. I misread the map and we found ourselves heading for the university. I asked a pedestrian or two and we were redirected to take the right route to the tourist bungalow, a large building in the midst of the frantic city. There we enjoyed refreshments within its quiet courtyard and again met Simon and Rose. Alec and I spent the afternoon on vehicle maintenance, washing and grocery shopping. We learnt that the best time to view the city was early morning, so we went to bed soon after supper in anticipation of experiencing the mysteries of the Ganges at dawn. We arose at five, washed, dressed, ate a quick breakfast of locally produced puffed rice with milk and sugar, downed a mug of tea and were soon ready to climb onto a trishaw. Jean-Luc and Martin came along in another one too. Dawn was breaking as the young men cycled along the slowly awakening city streets. People slept on their rope wooden beds outside their shops, while some had already woken and were packing their bedding away. A man toasted bread over the red hot coals of a glowing fire which had kept the night chills away. Tea house owners were making their first brew for the early risers. As the trishore cyclists pedalled down the narrow streets that led to the river, we passed many small temples and heard priests chanting to the rhythm of a drum. As we passed along the dimly lit streets, we noticed brightly painted statues of gods set in candlelit ingunuks within the temple walls. We alighted at the riverside and paid the trishore lad his due before we walked down the steps, known as a gat, to hire a boat, one rowing boat between the four of us, plus two rowers, who took turns at rowing. One of the men was also our English-speaking guide. He shared with us the rituals of the people by the river at that time in the 70s. As we floated quietly along the sacred Ganges River, the grey morning mist hovered above the water. The city came right to the water's edge. Many of the buildings once belonged to Maharajas from all over India 
and their architectural design certainly portrayed their origins. The oars dipped in and out of the brown waters in a gentle fashion as the oarsmen drew close to the riverside. There we could observe many Hindu worshippers who had come to take to the waters. Men wearing just a loincloth and the women a cotton cloth that modestly covered their body. Down the ghats they walked, right into the river's shallow waters at the edge. Each carried a brass pot to partake in the religious rituals of scooping up the water, turning around so many times, and dipping in and out. Priests sat on mats at intervals along the steps in the shade of their grass umbrellas, ready to mark the foreheads of the pilgrims with red powder after their sacred ablutions. Meditating gurus sat cross-legged on the steps in yoga fashion. One man in a loincloth did his exercises, which included a lengthy headstand in the high alcove of a building. Further on, we came to the funeral pyres, where understandably we were forbidden to take photographs. The bodies of the dead arrived on bamboo stretchers, the dead men covered with white cloth and the women with red cloth. The families carried their loved ones to the holy river within a few hours of their death. With high temperatures, especially during the day, this made sense. On arrival, the body was immersed in the Ganges before being placed on the pyre, a pile of burnable sticks and grasses. It would take four or more hours for the body to completely burn. Then the ashes would be scattered into the river leaving the pyre available for the next body. Holy cows and stray dogs roamed between the funeral pyres and the grieving relatives. Our guide informed us that children under ten, holy men and anyone who had died of smallpox were not burned, but placed in the river with a large rock tied to them so that they would sink. That seemed incredible to us, but that's what the man said. After the solemnity of the funeral pyres and the stench of the smoke wafting across the waters, we were taken further upriver to see the cottage industry in the Muslim sector of the city. There we were invited into the home of a craftsman who had a small showroom. Tea was served. We marvelled at the intricate work of the handmade cotton and wool lampshades, shirts and finely woven brocade. Unfortunately for our guide, no sale was made, so we returned to the river to be rowed back to the same gat where we had hired the boat. It was still only eight o'clock when we arrived, and the two trishore riders had remained, hoping they could pick up another ride on our return, and they were not disappointed. We requested that they take us to Durga Monkey Temple. There we saw many small brown monkeys, roaming high on the temple's ridges. A garland of fresh flowers was placed around our necks as the priest welcomed us, but as non-Hindus, we were forbidden to enter the temple. We walked across a pontoon bridge to Ramnaga Fort, which had an excellent museum with interesting exhibits, armoury, sedan chairs, elephant seats, ivory carvings, pieces of china and a very old clock embellished with zodiac emblems. The fort also boasted the grand entertaining room of the Maharaja. 
By then we were hungry and glad to stop at a street stall for potato puffs with yoghurt, chutney and curry sauce with the standard cup of chai, naturally. Our exploration of Veronese was not yet over as we headed back across the bridge to take the trishaws to a university museum with its exhibit of sculptures and miniature paintings. Then through the maze of narrow streets of Chuk Bazaar, a bargain hunter's treasure trove, to discover the Golden Temple, tucked away down a side street, interestingly positioned close to the local mosque, whose white minaret could be seen beyond the temple roof. In an alcove of its own, within the temple wall, was a statue of Ganesh, the elephant god. Gifts of rice, flowers and holy Ganges water liberally adorned its base. A call was made at another craftsman's home to observe a musical instrument, a zitar, being made from teak wood and a gourd. The friendly musician charmed us with a short rendition. Our last call of the day was an hour's ride to Zanath, where Buddha was enlightened. There we saw several stupas and temples to Buddha. Their construction was very plain compared to those in Ladakh. What a full and interesting day. For dinner that night I made a tasty pizza and was thankful that the last purchase of flour was fresh and tasty good, not like the previous stale, weevil-infested supply. The following afternoon we left Varanasi with Jean-Luc and Martin to drive towards Nepal. We shared the road with bicycles piled high with clay pots and baskets, leaving very little room for the cyclists. We overtook a line of elephants plodding along the highway, each with its trunk clasping the tail of the elephant in front. Their riders sat astride the thick necks of the obedient creatures, steering the giants with their feet from behind the huge flapping ears. After 60 miles, we found a clearing by the road to park for the night. When we awoke the next morning, it was a glorious sunny day, so Alec took the opportunity to change the engine oil, watched by a group of fascinated local spectators. The men observed closely, discussing amongst themselves the nuts and bolts of the task, men's talk. They were as pleased as punch when Alec gave them the old oil, plus the used filter and the shiny empty oil can. One man offered us fresh milk and another gave us two sugar canes. At Gorakhpur, we mailed postcards to friends and family back home, then had lunch at a roadside cafe, rice, curried vegetables, dal, fried chapatis and tea, all for ten pence each. We refuelled to full capacity, including six jerry cans in readiness for entering Nepal, where the fuel was reputed to be more expensive. Our journey continued along the road as we passed alongside banana and sugarcane plantations. On arrival at the Indian border control, we had no problems. In fact, no search at all. They didn't even check our declared items or money. The border post was right in the middle of the village, where there was little room to park as there were so many trucks and buses waiting too. Into Nepal, where the passport officials were quick, but customs were laboriously slow. They searched everywhere, including under our bed. They were looking for firearms and vehicle spare parts. 
It took so long for both Land Rovers to be searched that it was dark by the time we left the border. Several miles on, we eventually found a big enough area of land beside the road that was not farmed or terraced and was suitable to park on for the night. Total distance driven, 30,204 miles. You've been listening to a reading from Strangers Like Angels with a Devil or Two to Boot by Alec and Jan Foreman, presented by Explore More. Explore More is an adventure lifestyle brand founded on the 1977 travel stories of Alec and Jan Foreman with a passion to inspire people to explore more of the world, engage with others and embrace global cultures to ensure a greater understanding for each other and enable positive progression. Discover great products and more on exploremore.com. That's E-X-P-L-M-O-R-E dot com.